Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of Conversations with Annie and Kate. And over to you, Annie, to introduce our guest tonight. Thank you, Kate. So our wonderful and fabulous guest today is Dr. Devorah Lieberman. She's a clinical director at City Fertility's Sydney CBD Clinic, which opened in October last year in a very swanky pants office, might I add. Uh, she got her MD from the State Union New, New York Downstate, trained in obstetrics and gynecology at George Washington University. By the way, if you hear a dinging in the background, that's Fred having a dinner, just letting you know. Um, she joined faculty at Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital in Boston in 94 and completed her master's in public health at Harvard in 96. So basically she went to all of the best schools, I think is <laughs> what we're saying here. Um, after leaving Harvard, which at the time she was uh, a lecturer in obstetrics and gynecology, she moved to Australia in 1998 when her fiance told her, there is no surf in Boston Harbor, which is true. There is no surf in Boston Harbor, but I think he probably should have known that in the first place. And then on arriving in Sydney, Devorah worked in private IVF and public menopause clinics uh, when, you know, sort of looking through challenges and obtaining medical, uh, sorry, she had the challenge of gaining her Medicare provider number in, as an overseas trained doctor, which forced her out of the medical workforce for a few years, during which time she did something else equally impressive, which was being the associate medical director of women's health um, at Organon. I might have said mm -hmm. that wrong now, MSD. Um, thank you. Responsible for pro-fertility, menopause and contraception. So, so much wonderful experience. Then in 2003, she joined uh, Ghanaia, which was Sydney IVF at the time, and returned to clinical work in, work in IVF and miscarriage management. President of family planning at New South Wales for 12 years, is a past president of sexual health and family planning Australia and director of the Fertility Society of Australia for eight years as well. And not to say that all of that isn't massively impressive, she's also co-authored a book called uh, Empowered Fertility, a practical 12-step guide, which she wrote with life coach Claire Hall. Welcome, Devorah. Thank you very much. Now, first question, what are you drinking? Ah, I am drinking gin and tonic, Tanqueray and tonic, to be precise. Excellent. And why, I, um, why well, I drink uh, Tanqueray. Actually, I never drank gin and tonic until COVID. And then everybody started drinking quinine because they thought it was going to protect them. <laughs> okay. And um, my grandmother was a, a Tanqueray drinker. She always had Tanqueray martinis straight up with a twist. And um, she lost her mother to the 1918 flu pandemic. So I feel like well, we've kind of come full circle now in 2020. So that's why I'm now drinking Tanqueray. Got it. Got it. It's a good gin. It's a good gin. Um, I am on, oh God, what am I drinking? It's an Italian red, a Rossovero Primitivo. One of those. Ah. It is very good. I, I got it from one of the little wine shops around the corner from me here in Balmain and it's on offer. And I think I might go back and buy some more. It's that good. How about you? Just red like it? Uh, Fred, no, not so much. <laughs> She's usually more, she likes cider. I, think it's maybe I can understand that. A bit of sugar and a bit of fizz. Um, yeah, my dog Roy used to like beer. Oh, there you go. All right, Carruthers, tell everybody what you're drinking. I am drinking a can of Gordon's <laughs> gin and tonic because I am in the office and I realised that we had this, so I went and bought it. Um, 
I've got two cans of it because I might need it because it's been a hell of a day. <laughs> and we've got no glasses, so I'm drinking it out of this nifty, funky coffee mug. Thanks, Barbara. Uh, what can I say? You are the epitome of style and grace, right? Okay. <laughs> oh, funny. All right. Do you want to ask a first question, Kate? I will. I will. <clears throat> I'm so tempted to do the popular culture one, but I know you don't want to do that one. Um, <laughs> I, I want to know what, what do, do you do self-care and what do you do for self-care apart from drinking Tancre and tonic? Yeah. Well, that's, um, yeah. Waiting for gin o'clock during time of COVID. Um, self-care is hard for me, but so important. You know, I work in, in IVF and more often than not, I'm giving bad news. And I have some days where I'm giving a lot of bad news and that gets very draining. It's hard not to, to bring it home. I have tried meditating. I have had people try to teach me and I just, I can't do it. Um, I find my flow through knitting and um, I listen to podcasts and books and knit and find myself getting lost in the cables. And that's kind of how I take myself out of the, the mess of the day. That's really interesting because knitting is a kind of meditative process, isn't it? Yeah, I when think you, so. When you do it properly. And apparently there's some connections with knitting and mathematics, which clearly mm -hmm. have eluded me. But... Uh, <laughs> They actually say that knitting and uh, mathematics and coding, they're all very related. Yes. Yes, but uh, those two other fields are, are mysteries to me. Maybe we can get you there one day. No. <laughs> um, so my question for you, Devorah, what, what's the one thing that you will never do again? <laughs> um... Never do again. Eat the worm at the bottom of the, te of the te bottle of tequila. <laughs> yeah, no, you should never do that. People. <laughs> no, no I, don't, I don't have too many regrets about things that I've done. It seems to all work itself out eventually. And when was the last time you actually did end up eating the worm at the bottom of the tequila bowl? Oh, God, I think I must have been at uni a very long time ago. And I actually do like tequila. It's my, it's my preferred drink of choice, actually. Interesting. I know quite a few mm. of my girlfriends love tequila, too. I think my, my experience of tequila at university was so, yeah, the whole just slam it down and shove some salt and lime down your throat and hope for the best. Um, but I know that if you get really good tequila, you're meant to sip it and savor yes. it. Yes. Well, yeah. like this. And I, with a lot of lime and a couple of slices of jalapeno. It's beautiful. Oh, really? Okay. Mm. I've learned something new there. So I'm going to kick us off um, into the sort of the, the broader chat. So you and Kate have known each other for quite some time, right? You used to work together. Yeah, yeah it was a long time ago, Kate, wasn't it? Yeah, more than 10 years ago, I think. Well, I joined Twitter like 11 years ago, so it was at least... Yeah, yeah. so it's more than 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that happen? How did you two, how did you two meet? We were, we were both working at Jenea. Um, so that was an IVF clinic and I met Devorah there. Still is. And I, it still is an IVF <laughs> clinic. But I talked her into going on Twitter. 
and and she's she's still there. Oh, yeah. she's still there. She is indeed because um, I I met Devorah through um, Kate knows that I I struggle with endometriosis and a few other side effects of having stupidly horrible periods, and she she kind of um, what's the best way of putting this? Kate shamed me into finally getting help. Um, and that's how I got connected to you, Devorah. And I remember I walked into your clinic and we sat down and about five, maybe six minutes into the consultation, you went, hang on, are you Annie Parker on Twitter? And, I went, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and there you go. So anybody who tells me that Twitter is a terrible place, I kind of agree with them, but it's still also a wonderful place too, where you can meet great people and, you know, sort of still have positive conversations. So that's, that's how I, I kind of remember that, that whole episode. I, I didn't mean to it's very funny I meeting in real life to get help. <laughs> no, the thing, you know what it's like though, when you know, you've got to go do something. So it's like, I put off going to the dentist. Me too. By the way, everybody go to your dentist. It's a good thing to do. <laughs> yeah, totally do it. So Devorah, what, what actually made you interested in fertility as a thing for your career? Oh, well, I tell you, it was, it was kind of accidental. I started out, um, my, my career, starting out at uni, actually, wanting to go to medical school to become a gynecologist because someday I wanted to be president of Planned Parenthood, which is the American mm. version of family planning. Um, there were a whole series of events that happened around when I was 17, 18, that made me very passionate about uh, teen pregnancy and wanting to stomp it out and do what I could about that. So that's why medical school, the master's in public health, et cetera. Um, and I was working just in general ONG or OBGYN as I was in, in Boston and coming to Australia trying to find um, a new career path and basically, frankly, kind of stumbled in happily to fertility and IVF. And if you'd told me 24 years ago that I'd be living in Sydney, working in fertility, I would have told you you're out of your, out of your mind. But um, it's, it's, um, it's become now a, a passion and, a, and, and my life's work, really. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that that change and the ability to embrace that and there's so much interesting technology and technological advances and scientific advances in the field mm. uh, over the last few years but you still you mentioned earlier that you're still often delivering bad news yeah we will always and always be bumping up against the inefficiencies of human reproduction and how absolutely horrific we are as a species at reproducing. I used to say when I was um, uh, the chair of family planning that I make babies by day and prevent them by night because we had our board meetings at night. Um, but I heard a fascinating statistic once that human beings are 100,000 times less efficient at reproduction than sheep. Wow. So it is far easier to make a, a lamb than a human. Why is that? Oh, I just think human beings are very complex, very complex. And actually I did an embryo transfer today and we were looking at the embryo up on the, on the monitor and just marveling at how this clump of cells knows how to make a baby with 10 fingers and 10 toes. It's just extraordinary to me that it ever happens at all. 
Oh, it is, it is certainly, you know, magic of, of that, there's no doubt. And I think the, the other part, so a friend of mine back home in the UK has just gone through IVF. Um, in the UK, there's, you get one go of IVF on the NHS, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, that, that sounds fair. Um, and thankfully for her, it worked on the first go. But that's not always true, right? IVF is not something that you can predict whether or not it's going to no. work. Absolutely not. People, people surprise me all the time, um, both positively and negatively. People often ask me, what are the success rates? <laughs> well, how long is a piece of string? You know, it depends on so many factors. We talk about age all the time and age is certainly um, probably one of the greatest factors, but then there are, there are male factors, there are anatomical factors, genetic factors, so many things that we can't control. And that's, that's the hardest thing for people going through treatment. Um, people have compared the trauma of fertility treatment to the trauma of going through cancer treatment. And I think that's very much true from, yeah, from what I, I can Listening to my friend talking about, you know, all the different ways she had to test herself and then inject herself. And, you know, it's, it's not just we put in a, we put in an egg and, or a fertilized egg and hope for the best. It's, it's an, it's a huge process, isn't it? Well, happily, the, the, the physical process has gotten so much easier. You know, back in my days at Organon, those are my drug dealing days, Annie. Um, we were introducing devices and, and treatment protocols that really simplified the process so much. Back when I was in training last century, women had to have deep intramuscular injections and it was very painful and very prolonged the treatment protocol has gotten a lot simpler but i think the emotional side of things and the the loss of control and the not knowing what the other side's going to look like that hasn't changed and that's one of the big reasons that i wanted claire to write the book that we did to try to help women and couples coach themselves through mm-hmm. treatment yeah and I've, I've shared a link in the blog post about this to the book so Oh, thank at, you. At the Australian um, outlet. <laughs> oh, at, at, uh, yeah, Booktopia maybe. Well, I, yeah. I make 40 cents for every book that we sell, so I'm grateful for that. <laughs> if, if you think you're going to make fame and fortune writing a book, don't. <laughs> you need to write like Harry Potter or something. Yeah, I'm just thinking that. Let's yeah. go on to J.K. Rowling. <laughs> no, let's not go down that path. <laughs> mm. I know. I, as soon as I said it, I wanted to take it back. Uh, look, the books are still good. The books are still good. Leave it at that. Do you watch Woody Allen movies? Uh, no, no. It's, ne- it's never <laughs> been my bag anyway, actually. Okay. Just not my thing. Um, but going back to your drug dealing days, because I think that's important to go back to. Um, tell us more about that. Oh, it was, a, it was an incredible time. Um, I went to work with this company that was launching products, in really innovative products in, um, in menopause. So um, Tibolone or Livial. We were launching Implanon, you know, the uh, contraceptive rod in the arm. So this is a brand new, innovative, um, uh, long-acting, reversible contraception. And we launched a couple of fertility drugs. One was a, a device to make things simpler to give the injections. But the other was a whole new way of, do, of running an, an IVF cycle that really simplified it. And it was it traveled around the country and the world talking to doctors and fertility specialists about 
trying to change, shift their paradigm in how they were treating patients. And everyone was like, oh, it's not broke. Why do we need to fix it? And getting people to shift was, was really quite challenging. And now this protocol that we thought was never going to take off is probably more than 80% of cycles happen with this protocol that's um, much simpler and much more patient-friendly. Patient-friendly stuff. Uh, one of the things I'm really shocked about is just how rubbish medical treatment is for women. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. There's a little big push about men's health. I'm thinking health has always been men's health. What, um, yeah. What's that about? And, and something you mentioned is near and dear to my heart now is menopause. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's becoming very near and dear to my heart as well people you know so so like i think there's this great feeling like we're just supposed to suffer through it yeah yeah that it's natural um it's actually not natural to outlive your ovaries you know the um the life expectancy at the turn of the last century for women was about 45 so evolutionarily our ovaries haven't caught up to the fact that we are now living more than a third of our lives post-menopausal mm. um and back when i first started at the menopause clinic at royal north shore we had the feeling that estrogen should be in the drinking water that estrogen was the the fountain of youth and it was um this panacea and then along came the women's health initiative um which uh at a, you, you guys may be too young to remember this, but back in about 2001, this study came out showing all the horrors of, of um, hormone replacement therapy and increased deaths and blah, blah, blah. Um, but it turns out the um, WHI investigators really um, designed that study very poorly and they had the wrong women enrolled in, enrolling in the study and they were women who were much later into their menopause rather than women just starting out in menopause. And there have been analyses about the tens of thousands of excess deaths that happened in the U.S. because women just abandoned um, immediately their hormone therapy. And there is still, despite um, more studies showing safety, efficacy, there's this great fear of, of hormone replacement therapy. And I think that's terrible that women will suffer the physical symptoms as well as the potential medical problems of osteoporosis, um, premature heart disease, uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease, all sorts of things that estrogen is fabulous for. Yeah, I went and saw my doctor and uh, she was like, oh, we, it's a pity we could put you on estrogen, but you've got a uterus. I was like, no, I don't have a uterus. And she's like, hooray, we can put you on estrogen. <laughs> But even if you had a uterus, there are ways around that. I as know, well. but she was just like, "Yay! It's it's much easier without a uterus." Here, have estrogen. <laughs> go back a couple of steps, right? So I'm I'm yeah heading into menopause, just starting out. I'm I'm a newbie. Um, what the hell is it? What is happening mm. in my body right now, and why is it having such a visceral response in ways that are frankly painful? So. Minor hot flashes um, that can just literally, it feels like my face is about to burn off. It's that hot. Mm. The rest of my body is completely fine. It's in, and oftentimes I'm, my face is really, really hot, but the rest of my body is almost kind of blue cold. It makes no sense to me. What is going on? 
believe it or not, and I always think if men got hot flushes, we would know why. Nobody really knows uh. why flushes happen. Um, certainly has to do with, with the loss of estrogen and something going on in the hypothalamus possibly for temperature regulation. And there but, is some fascinating yeah. research that indicates that it's not, it's not uh, experienced the same way across all cultures. Ah, or I'm not so sure about that. I think that's a furphy. Oh, like excellent. People say, oh, Japanese women don't experience hot flushes because they, have, they eat a lot of soy in their diet. That's actually not true. They just never had words to describe it. So it just comes down to women not being able to tell their stories. Yeah. Quite possibly. Quite possibly. Well, not being listened to. Yeah. Yeah, that's the other thing I'm seeing. I saw an, a really interesting article last week around some women who've got, um, you know, sort of longer tail kind of uh, difficulties post-COVID. Things like, you know, struggling to, to take deep breaths or feeling feeling like, part of their skin is itchy and lots and lots of other things. And the amount of doctors that are just ignoring them and just saying, Oh, there's nothing wrong with you. It's all in your head or just, and I think, you know, particularly for things like menopause, even things like endometriosis, PCOS, a lot of the other conditions that are associated with menstruation itself. There's a reason why male doctors have been shit at diagnosing them. It's because they don't actually suffer it themselves. And the, the amount of research and dollars that go into it in the background, it being yeah, men's health versus women, is just staggering. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that you necessarily have to experience something in order to have empathy and an appreciation for what someone's going through. But perhaps women are just tend to be more empathic than men. Oh, that, that, oh, that was a very sexist thing to say, wasn't it? Well, no, but, it was at all. But, but, uh, but it, it is fascinating to me how women are not listened to. You know, you go to, the, you go to a male doctor and say, like I did with, I, I, I have irritable bowel syndrome. It's been diagnosed by a male gastroenterologist who t- finally said to me, yes, you do have irritable bowel syndrome. It's a real thing. Here's how we're going to treat it. And, but it was the first time in my entire life that anybody had ever listened to those symptoms and said, that's a real thing. And I was really right. shocked. What, that it was a real thing or somebody listened to you? Both. <laughs> <laughs> because I'd been told it was imaginary for, for so long and mm. have somebody, you know, a top specialist say, yes, it's a real thing. It is a thing and we can treat it. Yeah. Well, certainly for, for menopause, you know, the average age of menopause is 51, but a significant percentage of women will go through menopause in their 40s and a smaller percentage even in their 20s so the really sad thing is is when a 35 year old is complaining to their gp about sorry complaining is is the wrong word telling their gp Mm -hmm. about their hot flushes they just get ignored oh you're too young to be in menopause it can't be it can't be but it actually very well could be so what would your advice be, Devorah, to any woman out there that's listening to this going, I really want for my doctor to listen to me and they haven't yet, whether it's something to do with, say, PCOS or endometriosis or they want to get mm. pregnant and they're struggling or it's menopause, what would your advice be? Well, I think the advice, my advice would be to try to get as in, be as informed as you can about whatever that particular condition is. 
And if you're gonna go to Dr. Google, be very careful about the sources that you go to. For menopause advice, the Australasian Menopause Society, AMS, has a, an excellent website um, with loads of information and also has lists of providers who um, are members of the society, so they should be up to date on the latest and greatest. Um, for polycystic ovarian syndrome symptoms, um, to start with a, with a GP, but then perhaps see an endocrinologist or a, a fertility specialist who is more au fait with what that is. Um, certainly with endometriosis, there are plenty of endometriosis exper um, experts in, in, um, in Australia. So Endometriosis Australia is a good resource. Most of these um, conditions will have some sort of um, support group associated with them that you can go to for, for good advice. And I'll get those from Devorah and we'll pop them in the show notes so that everybody can see them. I do think it's important that we keep talking about this sort of stuff though, because I shared this with Devorah earlier. Um, I think it was yesterday. We were just chatting because I needed some more drugs. Thank you, Devorah. Um, <laughs> and I was just sharing that I'd been, I'd been down the dog park earlier walking Fred and somebody had mentioned to me, gosh, you look quite flushed. I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm having a hot flash at the moment. And they went, aren't you a bit young for that I mean, who knows tell my body that if you want to tell it to stop being floshy because I'm too young that's great and then anyway we started chatting and then literally between four or five women we went from me being you know, sort of perimenopausal or menopausal quite young I'm 43 that's that's kind of young and on average um and then I shared that I'd had endometriosis uh, I've had two endometriosis um uh hysteroscopies so two operations. And then literally we went around the group, PCOS, endometriosis, a sister that had died of endometrial cancer, um, two women who'd had terrible, terrible menopauses. And it was just fascinating how quickly we went from Annie's got a red face to everyone sharing their story. So I don't know. I think there's something to be said for us talking more openly about this sort of stuff. So we make it less less opaque, less scary, less, I don't know, thinking that you're alone. Absolutely. Did you know these women when you started talking to them or was it? Um... I know they're dogs. Okay. <laughs> no, we know each other vaguely and yeah, we pass right. each other in the street and we'd wave, but you know, I wouldn't be usually sharing my medical history with them though. No. <laughs> do... Nobody's business. Do you, do you get that as well though? Yeah. If you're, Oh my God! Dinner party. Yes. What do you, what What do you do? And and I get regaled with all. I get I get horrific labor stories, hysterectomy stories. Yeah. Um, um, I feel like I should send bills at the end of the night after everything I go through. Just say you work for the tax department. No one ever asks you any questions. Ah, that's a good idea. <laughs> Conversation killer. No, they, then they'd want to know, well, what do I do about my negative gearing? Or something oh, no, like I'm just that, a clerk so? in the tax department. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I do think that people need to share their stories more because there's so much shame around mm. it all, isn't there? Um, I think... Even now, even with all of the stories about infertility that have been being told for, for decades, 
women will still feel shame often around oh you're having it is that your second one That's now? my second one i've had a long oh, day it's been a hard okay. day okay all right i'm not counting um but to normalize these things right to 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 normalize the pain and the mm. that it's it's not a shameful thing it's just life it is life but the good news annie about going into menopause now is it will cure your endometriosis <laughs> look you know <laughs> One door opens, another door closes. But as I said to you, I've got drugs for that. So it's, it's all good. I will absolutely take all of the drugs. And uh, Kate and I have a friend who, well, I've got quite a few friends actually that are going through or have been through menopause and they chose the path of not wanting to take drugs. I am not that woman. Yeah. I give look, me the I can. I can respect, I, re, I respect that choice, absolutely. But I think it needs to be an informed choice to understand the pros, cons, risk benefits of whatever you do and whatever you decide to do, that's, that's fine by me. As long as you've had all the information, you can make your own informed choice. Mm. Well, one of the things Annie and I have been talking about is, is potentially doing a panel where we get some people together. We'd really like to get you on it too, Devorah. Um, to have a discussion about menopause because so many women are kind of struggling with this and, and unless they happen to have a conversation in the dog park or something, they feel really alone and we just feel mm. like maybe it's time to start having some conversations. Well, if we live long enough, we'll all go through it. Um, ovaries will not last forever. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it would be It'd be great. And there are stacks of resources and some really great menopause clinics around Australia as well. The menopause clinic at North Shore was, was a, I was there for 17 years and I loved it. It was amazing how you could change someone's life so dramatically with a tiny little patch or pill. Uh, fascinating. Just, just, just bringing their quality of life back. Um, yeah, life changing. It's um, quite powerful. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and, you know, I think not, not people are kind I reckon that study, that early 2000s study has put so many women off the notion of doing HRT. Yeah. Um, That's like what the Dalcon Shield did for IUDs. Hmm. You know, most women who are thinking, oh, I'm not going to get an, an IUD now weren't even born when the Dalcon Shield disaster happened. But um, it's just this, this negative air hangs around it. These, these things are always fascinating to me, how a, a, weird, a weird thing in the timeline ends up completely screwing it for, for other people down the line. It's, it's, it's just interesting how, how easy that can happen and oftentimes how it, it's, a, it's a completely bogus piece of research that ends up you know sending things off down the wrong track well well look at anti-vaxxers you yeah. know that 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 lancet article that has been completely discredited but has left us with um a, a whole whole host of people who think that vaccines cause autism and there's, there's studies or sorry studies research papers or surveys i think from the u.s 
where there's somewhere between 25 and 30% of American citizens who are saying that when a COVID vaccine becomes available, they will not take it. That's crazy. Yeah, how can, how can you say that? You don't even know what it is yet. You don't... Um, I have seen people being concerned about um, uh, FDA fast-tracking of a vaccine because they're, they're concerned that Trump needs this in order to... Um, get reelected so they're worried about that but uh i said to one of my friends on facebook well you don't have to just trust fda you can go to the european medicines authority you can even look at our own therapeutic goods association if you're worried about political pressure on approval mm. to see what international bodies are saying but um it's crazy isn't it well switching gears a little bit yeah what are the things that you're most excited about in terms of innovation that's happening in the medical space? Oh. Uh, I think that the era of breakthroughs in IVF is kind of over. I think our mm-hmm. gains now are quite incremental. So you see these these stories about what artificial intelligence is going to do in order to help select the best embryo. Well, that's great in helping you select the best embryo, but if all of your embryos are not great, it's not going to help you ultimately. Um, That that's a a big challenge. Um, uh, And I think that a lot of research gets overhyped. You know, when you have research comes out of university and the PR um, department does the press release, uh, and they forget to mention that the subjects were mice, not people. <laughs> it's, it's problematic. But look, I think it's, it's um, exciting but challenging times. Then thinking about COVID and going back to my, to my great-grandmother who died in 1918, we're back to wearing masks. Mm. Which were, and did she which die from the flu? Did she die yes, from she the did. Spanish flu? She died from, yeah, can we call yeah, my grandfather's. Isn't that racist? My grandpa, well, it's, it's kind of not. Um, it's, because, it's called the Spanish flu because Spain was not fighting in World War I and oh. they had a free media and nobody else did. There was censorship in every other region, so it got dubbed the Spanish flu for that reason. Right. And that's why now they don't, they don't like to have countries' names on it. They give it a, a disease-specific name. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, that's why. So Spain Spain was probably the last place. The choices for the origination of the Spanish flu are America, Kansas, or France. Hmm. Wasn't there a Hong Kong flu once? Yeah, that was in the 60s. So, you know, so they've, they've kind of moved away from this whole notion of naming it after a geographic location. Otherwise, right. this one would be Wuhan flu. Uh, and that's why we have coronavirus 2019. Nine. Mm. But it's coming back to to your grandmother because my grandfather's parents died in that orphaning him, you know. So wow. it, it was wow. it was a huge impact. And I've been researching, and they had all the same fights that we're having about mm. lockdowns, about masks, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's like we never learned anything. And after after the Spanish flu, it was like there was this great forgetting. Nobody wanted to remember it, even though it killed more people than World War One. Wow. And then the depression would have happened not long after yeah, that. Pretty so, much. Yeah, I was listening about how they ha- to a podcast and they were talking about how the effects of this COVID are just going to be with us for generations. 
and and Probably it's really so in the US. it's really interesting because there's there's research in America that shows <clears throat> the impacts of this kind of thing on um, areas that are already in poverty are mm. much more marked than in rich areas, and you can already see it in in the employment maps in Manhattan and, yeah, sure. and, you can, and the Bronx and Brooklyn. You can see there are certain parts that are doing well and other parts that are in deep recession. Yeah, it's a, but look look at the who who which workers are actually essential. Mm. It's the lowest paid. That that's one of the the worst and most important. Sorry, not worst. The most important things I think that's yeah. come out of COVID for me is just an appreciation for how much we rely on nurses and porters and cleaners and supermarket workers. You know, people who perhaps before COVID we would have dismissed as perhaps not being, you know, in, in the financial hierarchy of pay. Yeah. They, they're not well treated and bloody hell they should be. And we don't, we, I don't know whether we've learned the lesson yet. That's my, my frustration. Well, I was, I was actually going to ask Devorah. So obviously coming from America, and you're safely ensconced here in Sydney, mercifully. What are, what are you looking at it and how are you perceiving it? Oops. We'll wait for Deborah to reconnect. I think she's on her way back. That's the first time that's happened, Kate. We're doing quite well. Yeah. Hello. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. Uh, you're, not, you're, not, you're not on the university dark fibre like me for this time. So it's a luxury for me. So, so I was asking, what, you're, you're obviously here safely in Sydney. You're looking back at America, being an, oh. an American. How are you feeling? What, how are you perceiving what's going on over there? Oh, my God. I don't even know where to start. I'm, I, have, I have been um, uh, obsessed with US politics um, for the last four and a bit years in a way you know when Obama was president I never paid much attention because I just you know everything seemed to be going all right but geez what a what an absolute disaster it's um it's quite frightening and every every election time I think oh if this person gets in I'm going to give up my U.S. citizenship and then I never do but just just think oh if Trump manages to get in again I just don't I just don't what I'm going to do I think we might have to help you burn your U.S. passport. Yeah, I think we will do an intervention if that happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, um, I think I'm on track to now live more than half my life, I hope, um, if I live long enough in Australia. So I probably will end up being more Australian than American, despite my accent, which twangs a little bit. Um, it's, uh, but the, the, the mess, the mess that he's made of COVID and the, uh, the the grift in that whole administration it just it just makes me so ill it's quite spectacular and you know with covid and our little government i feel there are a lot of benefits to being a small island nation at the bottom of the world where nobody nobody really gives a toss i agree yep there's there's times when it's good to be an island mm. although england britain hasn't fed too well being an island no uh, no it hasn't and and I think some of that is down to 
let's not forget there's there's a difference between being an island and to Devorah's point in the middle of nowhere versus an island in the middle of you know from the US as a jumping point into Europe so there's that going for the UK in the sense of it's a tipping off point into lots of other parts of the world and let's just be really brutally honest Boris Johnson has chosen a strategy of perhaps favoring economy over people's lives and that I think is going to be you know one of one of his biggest failures <laughs> when people go back and score him on on his prime ministership which let's face it is just a bit of a joke in the first place as well I mean I, I've only ever met him once and it was whilst he was Lord Mayor of London at the time and we had a ping pong table and it turns out that he used to play ping pong but of course it's not called ping pong at Eton it's called whiff waff so he's calling it whiff waff and batting that and, and just you sat there going this is just cringeworthy this man is from a completely different population of people who have absolutely no understanding of what the real world is like mm. and that's his problem what I don't understand is that that false dichotomy, I think it's false, between virus and economy. Mm. Because if you don't control the virus, there is no economy. But isn't the economy just people at the end of the day? Yes, it is. Um, you know, unless we count corporations as people. Oh, that's Citizens United. I know. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I, I think, like, if you don't have people, you don't have an economy. It seems, yeah, it does seem like a false dichotomy to me to think of people as separate to the, the economy. And I think, you're yeah, going back to something Devorah said a couple of minutes ago around, you know, we, we don't actually know what the down, downstream impacts of COVID really are yet. So for us to say, or for any politician to say, you know what, let's just, it's okay to have a certain percentage of deaths because as long as the economy still keeps going, then we're okay. They don't know that. They have no idea. They don't know what the um, you know, sort of secondary or third kind of level health impacts are of people who've had COVID. I saw a, an, an article yesterday of a woman who's now had a lung transplant oh. because her lungs got completely destroyed by COVID. And yet, Okay, so it's not just the flu, people. It's not just uh, a virus. This this destroys organs, and even if you survive and recover from it, there are, there are potentially other impacts on your body that we don't know yet. Mm. Well, like you were talking about the the women who are complaining of weird post COVID mm. symptoms that are real. Well, men too. So there's, there's yep. the long haulers, they're calling themselves, and they've got a plethora of fascinating and somewhat horrifying symptoms. Mm. So I think the tip is try not to catch COVID. <laughs> Wear a mask, wash your hands. Yes. Well, I wore a mask in the food court in my, in my building today, and I was the only one. There were lots of people out and about. Wow. Yeah, I, I refuse to set foot in a supermarket without wearing a mask now. Mm. Yep, and I was talking to someone today who, who was saying that everybody at a god-awful hour this morning at Woolies had their mask on. So there well, are some, some people. 
Anyway, I think this is a pretty good time to call, call it to a close. Thank you so much, Devorah. It's been really great. Oh, lovely to see both of you and have a chat. Look forward to that menopause panel. Yeah, let's do that. And let one day in, in the after times, we can catch up in real life for, for a real life drink. We will. Well, that would be amazing. All mm-hmm. right. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Please remember to like us and leave us a good review because that would be nice. And uh, we'll be back shortly. Thanks. Bye.